Well, good evening. It's lovely to see you. And um, thank you for coming back for another dose. Can you put it like that? Yeah. Um, those, well, I think everybody here has been at least once before, is that right? Um, was there anybody who wasn't here last week? I have Oh, you haven't been before. Right, well, you'll need one of these. And you'll need one of everything, actually. And the only price for um, not having been before is that you've got more to read than everyone else. Um, so, I said that we would have a very brief um, uh, resume of what, what had gone before at the beginning of this week, um, but it is going to be quite brief, and, um, because I assume that everyone was paying attention um, last time. And last time, if you remember, we were looking at the second of the two Gospel accounts of uh, what happened after the resurrection. We were looking at Luke and John. And after that, we then had a look at some of the uh, similarities and differences that we could draw out of all four Gospels that we considered in the first two weeks. Uh, today, we're moving on to Paul. And although uh, in the Bible, the Gospels come first in the New Testament and Paul's letters come after that, uh, Paul's letters, as probably most of you know, are the earliest documents from the New Testament. So, so Paul was writing before the Gospel writers. And it's important always to bear that in the back of our minds because um, Paul, when he was writing the letter, first letter to the Corinthians, which we're going to be looking at one chapter of in a bit of detail later on, uh, was perhaps uh, 20 years within the time of uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, whereas the Gospel writers were probably some 15 to 20 years, even the earliest of them, um, to be written. So um, that's important because um, Paul was not just nearer in the sense of time, but he was, if you like, um, involved in the church developing, whereas by the time the Gospel writers wrote down their accounts to a considerable extent, all Paul's work and the work of the earliest apostles was already in place. And so in some places in the Gospels we might see some, uh, some recognition of the fact that the churches are not new. And so in a way, and people have tried to look at Paul's letters, put them in order, uh, probably 1 Thessalonians was the first, um, probably Romans was towards, uh, towards the end, um, with Ephesians and Colossians probably somewhere there. Um, but uh, people have tried to put them in order and they've tried to look at whether there is any major development in Paul's thought, uh, and you can argue that. The letter we're going to be looking at, at 1 Corinthians, is roughly in the middle, uh, and it's in the middle too in, in terms of bringing a lot of strands together. Uh, my own view is that the essence of Paul's beliefs and the way that he articulated them doesn't change significantly uh, from the beginning to the end. Uh, but that's a personal point of view. 
We are recording tonight uh, for one or two people who asked for um, to hear because they can't be here. And when we get to questions, then I'll ask you if you mind speaking into the microphone so that it can be recorded well. Uh, did everyone who's been here before bring their synopsis with them? Um, that's very good. Um, in a moment, there is, there is a one there. Uh, in a moment, we'll be looking at the back page of the synopsis, um, which is an extract from 1 Corinthians. But, but just to begin with, just to set the scene, I'd like you just to perhaps turn the pages of your synopsis and look at the last column, which is headed Paul. Uh, and you can see page one, page two and three, there's nothing in there. Page four, just right at the bottom, uh, we see a, a, a sentence, no more than a sentence. Uh, and um, you'll remember that in putting the synopsis together, I was trying to put opposite um, uh, the same events, uh, what the various gospel writers and Paul had written. So you can see here, uh, and if you turn over to the last double page, um, there's almost nothing further to add in the Paul column. So, whereas, to a greater or lesser extent, all the Gospel writers give us narrative accounts of what happened after the resurrection, um, Paul gives us just the tiniest little bit of information, and we'll come back to that in a moment. And so, Paul's writings are different in nature from um, the writings of the Gospel writers. And um, so we have to get into a slightly different way about thinking. Paul uses pictures, but his pictures are not so much representations of um, uh, narrative reality as they are of pictures to try and give us a way into what would otherwise be very um, complex theology. So I'm going to start now by reading... Uh, from the back page, the appendix from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read verses 3 to 8. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. There are four... Uh, basic statements there about the sort of things we've been talking about from the gospel accounts. First of all, Christ died for our sins, and Paul puts in brackets according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised, by implications by God, but he was raised again in brackets according to the scriptures, and then he appeared to the disciples in various configurations. And in a way, 
those four statements could stand as Paul's creed, or one of Paul's creeds. Um, and you'll notice that they come in two kind of pairs. Um, the second of each pair really confirms the first. So, so Christ died for our sins and he was buried. The fact that he was buried confirmed that he was dead. Something that, again, the gospel writers are keen to emphasize. Uh, that he was raised and he appeared to the disciples. Again, as the gospel writers seem keen to emphasize, it's the appearances that confirm the fact of the resurrection. So in that respect, at least, Paul is um, on the same footing with the Gospel writers. Uh, and similarly, too, with this emphasis on according to the Scriptures. According to the Scriptures, um, we know from the Gospel accounts of Jesus' passion and death that there are many references there to specific uh, quotations in the Old Testament. Interestingly, and we covered this in the last two weeks, there are many fewer um, direct references to specific Old Testament texts in the post-resurrection accounts. And so what Paul seems to be saying is, well, there is evidence in the Old Testament that God would raise um, the anointed one, the Messiah, uh, from the dead. And we'll come to that in a moment. Um, but this is a phrase which is tremendously important. And if you look at, uh, if you look at Acts, you'll find the phrase mentioned several times. And in the handout, um, you can have the exact references. Before we, before we unpick those first few sentences uh, anymore, it's important also to remember how uh, Paul came to faith in the risen Lord Jesus. And I think probably most of you will know the story about him being such um, a keen and enthusiastic and, uh, in his terms, a righteous Jew, that when the Christian, as he saw it, sect started to arise, uh, he thought that it was a distortion of everything that he stood for as a Jew, and he actively persecuted the young Christians and the young Christian church. Uh, young and old. And one day he was on his way to Damascus because he'd heard that there was um, a church there and he had this, uh, this vision, his road to Damascus experience. And if you want to read about it, you can find it in Acts 9. In fact, it's repeated a couple of times in Acts, but Acts 9 is its first appearance. Um, I've got um, a picture which is not large enough to put up on the wall to show you, um, which is, uh, I mean, there are loads and loads of, of representations of, of Paul on the road to Damascus um, and his, um, him uh, receiving a message directly from Jesus. Uh, this just happens to be uh, the design for a window in St Paul's Cathedral, which was um, which was lost during the First World War. But I thought if I just you can I just pass that round and you can you can have a look at it. It's a dramatic in in any pretty much any um, uh, visual representation. Paul is on the ground and he's shielding his eyes from from the light uh, and he becomes blind uh, and um, and there is some. Uh, sense of him having a personal encounter with Jesus. Some people have said from the, what I've just read you, well, is Paul saying that his experience of Jesus was identical to that of the apostles? And how could that be since 
Um, what happened to him happened some time after the appearances to the other disciples, and some time after uh, it's quite clear that Jesus had um, ascended back to God. And um, I, my own feeling is that, that Paul is not claiming that. Paul is not claiming that he saw Jesus in the same way as um, the other disciples and apostles. What Paul is at pains to do in many places in his letters is to emphasize the integrity of his calling. He was the one of the, he called himself an apostle uh, and he wanted to put himself on the same level as those others who were called apostles. And um, he was starting on slightly uh, shaky ground really because the other apostles had all been witnesses. Do you remember we talked a bit about the importance of, um, of the witnesses to uh, the resurrection uh, and what came after, the resu- witnesses to the crucifixion and to what came after the resurrection. Um, Paul can't claim that. What he can claim is that, that um, God had in mind for him a specific message which came to him on the Damascus Road uh, through this experience he had, a very real uh, and um, traumatic in many respects experience of meeting Jesus. Who are you, Lord? Uh, Paul, why are you kicking against the pricks? This, this sort of conversation that he relays. Um, and so it seems to me much more likely that, that the reason for Paul putting himself at the end of this list of appearances is because he wants to claim that although he wasn't a witness of the events, that he was a witness to the risen Lord Jesus Christ and that therefore his teaching has the authority that he certainly believes it is, but the authority which it seems clear was often questioned by those who were in opposition to him. Paul had, as you'll probably know, by no means a clear run uh, in his missionary work. Uh, and he refers um, in, I think, in 2 Corinthians to the super apostles, people who, who had come to Corinth after he'd left and who, in Paul's view, were perverting the message that he'd left with the Corinthian church. So this was, this was really important and therefore uh, it's perhaps no surprise that, that Paul is wanting to link himself as closely as he can with um, those witnesses of the things that had happened. And then there's this phrase that right at the end of that uh, section of verse 8. Last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And, and scholars have argued about precisely what this means because it's not self-evident. It's not evident at all. And after thinking about it a lot, it's not evident to me precisely what this means. But I think one possible explanation is that Paul is, is thinking of terms in, in terms of this dramatic event as dramatic as a birth, uh, which happened to him in an extraordinary way. And so again, he's emphasizing the special nature of that experience that he had. But you can read all the commentaries and and uh, sometimes uh, people like to translate it untimely, just a little bit later than the others or something like that. Uh, but abnormal seems to be the word that comes up um, in translation of the Greek most frequently. 
And in this chapter, which we're going on to do, what uh, Paul does is, is he expands the scope tremendously of the implications of the resurrection of Jesus. There are hints in the accounts that we've heard from the Gospels. For example, uh, at the end of Matthew's Gospel, uh, Jesus telling the disciples to go and baptise everyone in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. Uh, Paul has already covered a lot of this kind of ground, not in the same terms, but um, by thinking about and allowing the Holy Spirit to work on his thoughts um, to determine what are the implications for the Christian followers of Jesus of God having raised Jesus from the dead. And so in um, in this chapter, and the reason I've chosen this chapter is because although the resurrection is everywhere in Paul's letters, um, this is the most extended treatment of the subject on its own. Uh, you'll know if you've read much of Paul that, that he is a great one for starting off with one idea and then kind of following it in a slightly different direction and then veering off in another direction. Uh, in this chapter, he is focusing very clearly on um, the resurrection. And so rather than attempting to do a complete survey of all that Paul thought about the resurrection. I thought we'd try and keep it down to size and and you know that in the last two weeks I've had great difficulty because of my enthusiasm with the subject of getting through the material in a a reasonable amount of time. I thought we would would look at this chapter and even within this chapter we we would just pick up some of what I think are the most significant strands. So by the end of this evening you won't Uh, in any sense have um, a full um, unfolding of all that Paul has to say about the resurrection. Uh, If you want something like that, then I would refer you to this book, (laughs) Uh, where kind of virtually everything that Paul says about the resurrection is considered in the light of uh, the rest of his, his teaching and the rest of his letters. Um... If we just um, uh, look at what Paul says happened in terms of the appearances, you'll notice that the first thing that he says is that Jesus appeared to Peter, and that is consistent, isn't it, with each of the four gospel accounts where where Peter is is mentioned, uh, and in some of them where P- Peter has clearly has his own um, his own uh, appearance from Jesus. Um, Paul is talking about the male disciples, and, and it's very interesting, given the emphasis in the Gospel accounts on the women, that Paul doesn't mention the women. Some people have a very low view of Paul's attitude towards women. Um, and it is possible that the absence of that reflects uh, his view. Uh, it may simply be that he didn't think that that was significant enough in the context that he was writing in to make the point. Because after all, this is not an elaborate version of these events. He is, he is kind of pressing forward. And the important thing about the appearances are that they were many and varied. And that many of the witnesses are still alive. Uh, so he, uh, Jesus appears to Peter. He appears uh, to the twelve. Then he appears to 500 other followers, and this is not something that is mentioned in uh, the Gospel accounts at all, Uh, but Paul 
uh, calls on those who are still alive as witnesses to that fact. And then interestingly, because James isn't mentioned in the Gospels, but James was a leader of the Jerusalem church, uh, Jesus appears uh, to James and, um, and to what um, Paul describes as, um, and to all the apostles. Um, so they've all, they all saw him, and then last of all, he appeared to me. So, so um, Paul's account is not, um, is not totally inconsistent with the gospel accounts, or put it the other way around, the gospel accounts are not completely inconsistent with Paul. They overlap. Uh, again, as the gospel accounts do amongst themselves, they seem to overlap in the thrust of things, perhaps more than in the detail of things. And what I was trying to emphasize at the end of last week was that I thought that the overlap of the similarities and the areas um, where, uh, through the accounts, particular uh, points were being made were far more significant than the points of detail that were different within the Gospel accounts. One of the things that we haven't done, one of the, for one reason there hasn't been time to do it, but, but also because it seemed more appropriate to do it in the context of Paul and in the context of the Gospel writers, is, is to have at least um, a, a, a limited view of what, what the Jewish view was of resurrection. Uh, at around this time, in the middle of the first century um, AD. And it's interesting because uh, clearly Jewish ideas about the resurrection developed throughout the Old Testament period. Um, to begin with, if you look back at some of the oldest accounts, uh, when people died, they went to a place called Sheol, which was a kind of like a limbo or an underworld where nothing much happened. And, in some of the Psalms, you, you'll read, um, Who can praise you, O God, from Sheol? It wasn't possible to do anything. In other words, don't forget to praise God now, because once you're dead, it'll be too late, was the kind of um, general attitude at that time. And probably that continued uh, up until, I don't know, getting towards perhaps the 300s, 200s BC. Um, and um, there, there are, when we look at Daniel, Daniel, probably the latest book to be written in the Old Testament, probably around 150 BC. If you look at Daniel, um, there, are, there are some, some indications that views have changed quite significantly. Uh, in Daniel 7, there's um, the idea, perhaps the idea that, um, that Jesus was quoting of the Son of Man coming on the... The, um, or he quoted it as the Son of Man. I think in Daniel it is as a man coming uh, on the clouds of heaven. Uh, but in Daniel 12, verses 2 to 3, uh, this is written. At the end of time, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars, forever and ever. Uh, so clearly there, there is, there is there's an idea of something like a final judgment. There's an idea of there being a separation between the good and the bad. Uh, and there is an idea then of perpetual 
as it's put here, shining like the stars. And it seems that by the time we got to the period when Jesus was alive, through what we can read in the Gospel accounts, because there's very, very little Jewish literature that survived from that time. Uh, and so if you look at the earliest um, uh, surviving Jewish documents, you have to read back uh, several hundred years of history, mainly, to know what was going on. But if you, if you think about, for example, uh, the account that Jesus had of his dispute uh, with the Sadducees, and it's reported that, that, um, that the Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection of the dead, thereby implying that uh, their main rival group, the Pharisees, did believe in the resurrection of the dead. And, and, and the Sadducees asked Jesus this question about, well, if a man dies and his mother, uh, his, his wife marries his brother, as she was required to do, and then he dies and she marries the next brother, and she marries in the end seven brothers. Uh, at the resurrection of the dead, whose wife will she be? And, and Jesus just says, well, you've just misunderstood the idea of the resurrection of the dead. Um, clearly at that stage then, within the Jewish faith, there was some expectation, probably at the end of time, that there would be resurrection. Also, Jesus, when he was responding to Martha before he, he raised Lazarus from the dead, um, uh, asked Martha a question and she, she responds, um, yes, I do believe that there will be a resurrection of the dead at the end of time, or words to that effect. So, um, so, so, so by that time, it was, it was clearly around. Um, what Paul then does is to take the fact that he believed that Jesus had been raised by God from the dead and tries to slot it into that general background and try to work out what that implies. And much of um, this chapter is about that. It's not so much about stating the facts about uh, the resurrection of Jesus, although, as we'll see, Paul goes to great lengths uh, to try and make it beyond doubt the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead, that he was raised in a physical form. But then he goes on to talk about what the implications are for those who came after Jesus. And he uses, for example, and we'll see this, he, he uses this idea as, of Jesus as the first fruits. Um, the first fruits were the first part of the crop, the first, when the harvest was taken, the first fruits were, were, were the best bit, like kind of extra, extra virgin oil, you know, um, the, the, the best bits. And they were either given to the landlord or they were given to God. Um, and after that, then the tenants could take the rest. So the idea of first fruits applied to Jesus is that Jesus has, has acted as a model for those who come after. Um, but we'll see that in a bit more detail in a moment. And so what has happened in a very short space of time uh, between uh, the time that Jesus was, was carrying out his ministry uh, when the idea was there, but, but I think it probably has to be said on the best evidence that's available, the resurrection was not a kind of significant central Jewish belief. And then by 50 to 55, when Paul is writing this letter, it has become the centerpiece of everything that Paul writes about Jesus. Uh, and he says, well, we'll see very clearly what he says in a moment. Uh, and, and he couldn't have made 
his point of view clearer than he makes it here. Um, he comes to talk about Jesus' resurrection um, starting something completely new uh, and what's described perhaps as the age to come um, and that his resurrection is, is a sign of the future resurrection for his followers. Uh, this idea of a kind of two-stage event is also entirely new as far as we know. Uh, it was never anticipated that there was going to be the resurrection of one person followed in due course and possibly after some time by the resurrection of others. Um, and what, it, what it, this idea also involves is, is a kind of bringing forward of the whole idea of judgment. I think probably most of us can think, well, okay, there's going to be a, a, a judgment at, at the end of time. But, but what Paul is doing is saying, if you think about what the cross means, about Jesus' death on the cross, the whole idea of judgment has been brought somehow into the present and the significance of judgment has been changed because what Jesus did on the cross for all those who come after is to make available to them the same relationship that he himself had with God. And so, so judgment uh, is not the prevailing issue. Uh, for those who want to seek God's forgiveness, that is always there and that is always available to them through what Jesus did on the cross. So already you can see that we are into quite a different type of world than we were when we were looking at the Gospel accounts. There may be things in the Gospel accounts which are kind of difficult for us to get our heads around, um, but I hope you've realised that this evening it's not going to be that easy because already we're into very, uh, very deep and very... Um, uh, interesting and stretching uh, theology. It's not all going to be quite like this, you'll be pleased to hear, but, but just to give you some of, some of the ideas that we'll be coming, coming back to. Um, another thing that Paul does, and we won't touch so much on this this week, but it will come back again next week when we're considering about the implications of the resurrection for us, um, is that uh, Jewish people were very keen on metaphor, uh, and for them, um, many of the metaphors centred around what God had done for them in their history. And above everything else, um, his saving activity of bringing the Jewish people out of exile in Egypt uh, was seen as uh, kind of the defining moment for the Jewish nation. That, and after their period of wanderings in the wilderness, um, them being introduced or introducing themselves to the promised land. Um, and so in many cases, you, the, the, the metaphor of return from exile or of God's saving acts is, is used uh, in the Jewish faith. Again, uh, Paul takes that idea of metaphor, but he changes it very dramatically. And he's thinking about um, an idea of a, a new creation, but something that isn't achieved through coming back from exile, but which is achieved by Christian baptism. And in Romans, he talks about how uh, baptism can be seen as dying with Christ when you go down into the water, 
and being raised with Christ as you come out of the water. Um, so again, a completely different idea. But uh, So taking the ideas that were around, but applying them to a completely new situation. Uh, and Paul's kind of inspiration by the Holy Spirit to work all these things out is an extraordinary thing, particularly given how deeply rooted we know he was in the traditional Jewish view of things. And again, later in Romans, Romans 9 to 11, Paul is clearly wrestling with the fact that, well, he, is, he always was a Jew. He was, you know, he was the best, most observant of Jews. <coughs> and yet he's had to give that up because God, through Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit, has given him this message that everything has been transformed as a result of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So um, that's the kind of introduction, that's setting the kind of broad canvas uh, against which we're going to look at some, um, some specific things within 1 Corinthians 15. But I think probably you deserve some music now. And um, these, these, this is a text set of music. <coughs> you may or may not be pleased to hear by hand.
just to give you a very brief further introduction to this chapter, um, in the, that uh, section from the Messiah that we just heard, uh, the contrast between Adam, the old man, standing for all of humanity, and Jesus, um, the new man, uh, standing for redeemed humanity, um, is, is significant and it comes up in lots of different places. Um, the overcoming of death, um, death, the ultimate sin, um, uh, is a significant element in this. And again, you'll be able to see um, the various, the, I've got about seven or eight um, uh, references within this chapter where you can pick up those, those strands. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Paul doesn't question uh, the fact of the resurrection. He's not terribly interested in how the resurrection happened. What he is desperately concerned about is why it happened, and because it happened, so what? What are the implications for us uh, in our following of the way of Jesus Christ? Uh, for those of you who are enthusiastic, um, um, studiers of forms of scriptural writing. Uh, I put something in the handout about what seems to be the pattern of this chapter, how uh, it follows a rather typical Jewish pattern of uh, two themes followed by the central point and then working out away from the central point um, with reference to those two themes again. But for most of the rest of us, um, we can manage without that. But you've got it, or you will have in the handout if you want to... Um, to follow that. But the points that I particularly want to have a look at uh, this evening um, are the following. Uh, what would it mean if there were no resurrection? Paul, as you know, is a very argumentative type of writer. Uh, not, I think, because he likes having arguments, but because I don't think he can help himself, but also because he's writing his letters in what you might uh, describe as a kind of educated and therefore somewhat rhetorical style. So just as if, for example, you were given a, a theorem to work out in those happy days when we were all at school, uh, and one of, the thing, one of the ways of doing that would be to try and prove that the theorem was wrong. And if you couldn't prove that the theorem was wrong, then the theorem was right. And Paul does this, and, and he sets out to demonstrate the implications of there being no resurrection and gets to the end and says, well, that can't be. And therefore, Jesus has been raised from the dead and as a result of that. So, so um, we're going to follow that thought process through. And then finally, uh, we're going to address the question which came up uh, in the first session and um, also again last week, what is the resurrection body like. Um, and that should be more than enough, I think, for us to be going on for one evening. Uh, first of all, then, if there were no resurrection, if resurrection were not possible, then what would it mean? Well, the first thing, the first and most obvious thing that it would mean is that Jesus could not have been raised from the dead by God. And so if you like to look at uh, verse 13, 
If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And again in verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. Verse 14, another implication, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching, in other words, Paul's representation of the whole gospel, the whole good news about Jesus, uh, is is useless, uh, and so is your faith. In other words, the whole kind of shared enterprise that he and the Christian, the Christians at Corinth, who have been persuaded by him of the truth of the gospel, if there is no resurrection, then the whole of this shared enterprise has no foundation at all. Um, so it's pretty stark. And um, so not only is there no faith for the living, you can see that in what I've just read and in verse 17 again, uh, but also there's no hope for the dead either. And there seems to have been developing this idea of uh, perhaps Christ- uh, the, the earliest Christians were really concerned about, for example, their parents who had d- died before they could become Christians. And so it sounds as though there was a, an idea of, of being baptised on behalf of your loved ones. Um, I, I don't want really to explore that, but otherwise, if I don't tell you that, you won't understand what this baptism for the dead is about. Uh, and, and it's not something that Paul necessarily is recommending as good policy, but something that clearly was happening. Um, carrying on, what else does this mean? Well, in verse 15, um, we are found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he did indeed raise Jesus Christ from the dead. So, so if there's no resurrection, Jesus can't have been raised from the dead. Um, it has these implications for our faith. But worse than all of that, perhaps, is that we are telling lies about God. Because we've claimed that God did something that he didn't do. And what that means, then, is that God himself is not powerful enough to overcome sin and death, those things that kind of beset our human existence. Uh, And um, so when you take all that together, um, Christians, this is verse 19, uh, if only for this life, in other words, there is nothing beyond this life, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men and women. Um, So we're pitiable. Everything about it's pathetic, really. You believe this, and it's 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 not the case. Um, and if that's so, then then why Paul, for example, we know Paul was um, put himself into danger and into dangerous situations, took risks. Um, why do we do that? Verse thirty. Why do we endanger ourselves every hour? Um, If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Um, So you can see what what I said earlier about it being kind of rhetorical questions. He's sort of laying it on extremely thickly, but that's because it's so important to him. Um, Verse yeah, so that verse 32 is, is kind of, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. It's kind of, um, you could describe that as fatalism, really. Uh, and it is a way by which many people live their lives. 
those who haven't heard about Jesus, who haven't heard the good news. Um, And to Paul, none of these things are possible. They just aren't possible because principally of what it says about God and about his inability to control things and do things. Um, There is no glory to God in any of this. And if there's no glory to God in it, then it can't be right for Paul. So as a result of this, Paul comes to the clear conclusion that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Uh, And he works through what the implications of that are. Um, So verse 20. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Um, so, So it's possible and it has implications for those who come after Jesus uh, as, as the first fruits, and I'll just come back to that in a moment. But later on, um, one of the implications is that this is uh, for everyone. Verse 51, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. So the resurrection that was available to Jesus, the first fruits, is available to us. Uh, and the idea of the first fruits is... is um, is not simply that Jesus was a kind of model or a prototype for us, although that's very much the sense in verse 20 that I just uh, quoted. Um, Verse uh, verse 23, uh, each in his own turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Uh, And again in 52 to 54, continuing from where I just left off, we'll all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality so he's moving from Jesus to Jesus's followers using the example of Jesus as a prototype but more than that the whole idea of first fruits is that Jesus is actually the means by which all of that will be achieved. Um, But thanks be to God, Paul writes in verse 57, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, through all that um, God has achieved for us in raising Jesus from the dead. Uh, And so not just a prototype, but a means by which we can be assured of our own resurrection goes on to talk and uh, we we heard a little bit of this about how um, Adam's sin is overcome. The Jewish idea was that Adam had sinned and that Adam's sin was passed on, like it or not, to all subsequent generations uh, and that there was nothing that could be done about it until Jesus came and until um, God set the seal on Jesus' life and ministry by raising him from the dead. Um, And then we get to the point that is really important for Paul. That in all all of this, um, God is glorified because all of this means that the worldly powers and death, the ultimate sin, uh, are destroyed. So, um, verse 24. The end will come when Christ hands over the kingdom to God the Father 
after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that that does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. And, and if you wanted um, uh, a sort of uh, summary of what underlies everything that Paul writes about God, it is God being all in all, uh, God being having power over everything um, in this world and in the next and in any other worlds. All in all is a, is a good way to describe that. Um, and uh, similarly, emphasising the point, the, the point towards the end of the chapter, verse 54, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, there we are. Just one other uh, reference back from um, verse 27, when it says he has put everything under his feet. Um, that's, a, that's a quote from Psalm 8. And that psalm begins, O Lord, our Lord, how, what majestic is your name in all the earth. Um, again, emphasising uh, by that reference, God's power. So uh, it's time now for another musical excerpt because it's particularly appropriate to um, have that after I was just reading that, that piece about, about victory over death and sin.
think Paul would have been absolutely astonished to think that someone was going to be setting his words to music, any kind of music, let alone that kind of music, 1,700 years later. Because, of course, uh, in the earliest letters, he was looking forward to the imminent return of Jesus. And um, even in these letters, he thinks it's going to be fairly soon. Um, and um, so the fact that um, Handel was able... Well, I think it's wonderful that we can listen to it 250 years after it was written, but, but um, uh, it's a great privilege, really, isn't it? You may not all like it, but... Um, it, it is. It is wonderful, and um, uh, and of course, the, there are settings in Messiah from all parts of um, the scriptures. Um, but um, this was seemed to be particularly appropriate this evening. So, our final question: What is the resurrection body like? Um, and um, here we see that there is clearly for Paul uh, a discontinuity. A discontinuity which is represented by death between uh, the body that um, Jesus had when he was um, alive in the conventional sense, when he was going walk, walking around on the earth uh, and undertaking his ministry, and the <coughs> resurrection body. Um, so I don't think you can argue that there is no uh, discontinuity. And if we look, for example, at verse 36, um, where, where Paul is talking about, um, well, he's answering the, his own question. Uh, someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Um, and of course, people in those days didn't quite understand about um, seeds, and I know that this is a particularly uh, particular topic that uh, Sheila is keen on. Now, seeds, of course, don't die when they go into the ground, but when they kind of rise again, they are noticeably different from seeds. And I think this is just the point that Paul was, was making. Um, so when you sow, you don't plant the body, the body of the plant that will be, but just a seed. Uh, but God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Um, so there's, there's clearly a, there's a picture there that, that Paul is painting, kind of uh, like it or not, or um, spot on or not, whether it is. Uh, and then he goes on to say, verse 42, halfway through that verse, the body that is sown, in other words, our, our bodies when, when we're uh, on on earth, um, in the normal way, is perishable. Um, the raised body is imperishable. It's sown in dishonour, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. I'll come back to that in a moment. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Um, now, you might say from that, well, that makes it pretty clear, doesn't it, that um, we all know what a natural body is because we're all living in them at the moment. And we can imagine what a spiritual body is, and it's a body with no substance. Um, unfortunately, this is one of those areas where translation is very, very difficult uh, because the distinction that Paul seems to be wanting to make is between um, the bodies that we know and the bodies that in reality we can only imagine. Um, uh, 
And I think that spiritual is a very unhelpful word to describe that because it has for us implications of being spiritual is not being physical. And I don't think that that's what it means. I think that perhaps to, give a, to kind of give a sense of it, um, the best way, and, and it's not an exact translation, although we don't know what an exact translation is because the word that Paul uses for spiritual is not a common word, um, but it seems to have um, the connotations. <coughs> what we've descri- what's described here in this translation as a natural body we could describe as a kind of earthbound body. In other words, we know what that is because we're, we're standing in our bodies, we're standing on the earth. It is kind of to do with the earth. Um, a way that you could talk about um, the post-resurrection body is, is a heaven-bound body. Not earthbound in the sense of being bound to the earth, but heaven-bound, being bound for heaven, on its way to heaven. Um, and I don't know whether you'll find that helpful. I certainly found that a helpful idea uh, because Paul is very clear in almost everything else that he writes that although the uh, resurrected body is not the same as the body that went before, it is a physical body, and it's not simply... Uh, kind of spirit in the air because if you'd said to him well Jesus was just raised as a spirit he would have said well that's not being raised at all so I'll just leave that with you for a moment and it may be something you'd like to come back to because it's been made clear that this is a real issue for people Uh, and I'm sorry that I think that it's made worse by this by this translate, people have tried all different ways of translating it. Uh, the distinction is is made um, less e- less easy than it already is because the whole idea is a difficult one for us. I think uh, it's made less easy by using a word which has such different connotations from what I believe, at least, Paul intended it to imply. Um, He goes on, well, he doesn't go on, but, but back in verse 37, he's, um, he's using this picture of the seed. He's, he's talked about different forms of bodies, and that seems to be much closer uh, to, to what he's, he's talking about. Um, another way that people have suggested that it might be possible to understand what Paul has written here is, uh, is to keep the word spiritual but to interpret it um, not as composed of spirit, in other words composed of all things that aren't bodily, but animated by spirit. And that of course would be very close to what Paul writes about so much uh, in relation to the way in which the Holy Spirit acts on people in their earthly lives. Um, So when Paul talks about the spirit, he's not talking about something disembodied by something, but about something that has an effect uh, on people who of course live in their own bodies. Whatever else 
Paul is clear that the resurrection body is, is um, superior in all respects to the pre-resurrection body, the earthly body. Um, and I've already read to you, you know, he uses words, um, uh, earthly body perishable, um, the new body imperishable, uh, the earthly body full of dishonour, the new body uh, full of glory, the earthly body so weak, uh, and the new body full of power. Uh, and so, in that way, it's that body which is able to inherit God's kingdom and to inhabit God's kingdom. So verse 50, I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood, in other words, our earthly bodies, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So this is... Um, I don't pretend that any of this is at all easy, and um, certainly having been kind of confronted with all these things um, quite late in the evening uh, may require you to think about it, but um, I, I think from my own experience that it is worth um, grappling with because it's so central uh, to the Christian faith. So, um, just to try and um, draw this to an end and leave a little more time than we've had on previous occasions for questions and comments and debate. Um, really, for Paul, you can't get away from the fact that, um, that God raised Jesus from the dead and that without that, the whole of the Christian faith, the whole of the faith that he spent his life at personal risk uh, expounding and proclaiming is futile verse 17, which was the verse that I used uh, right at the beginning of week one, uh, just to emphasise how important I thought the whole topic was. Um, the Jesus who was raised for Paul is very clearly the same Jesus who had died on the cross. So there's no, there's no doubt of the continuity um, and that uh, it, it is the same person and that without these, these two things, um, that, that Jesus, if you like, he didn't continue through death, but, but uh, the, the person Jesus was the person Jesus on earth and is the person Jesus uh, still after the resurrection, um, coupled with, with um, in the middle of all that, God raising Jesus from the dead. Um, without, those, without those two things, Paul has no gospel proclamation. And without the other, neither of them uh, has it, can have its full weight. In fact, it can hardly have any weight at all. So, so you can't pick and choose, I think, with Paul. You have to uh, accept the whole of the argument rather than the bits of the argument that are easier. Because for him, it all goes together. And it's almost as if in this... In this um, in this chapter, it was all written with one huge outflow of breath, uh, and that there were no pauses in the middle, uh, and that when he got to the end, he'd said all that he wanted to say. Uh, he did dictate his letters, we're almost certain. Um, there is a distinction, though, between the death of Jesus, which is something that is, in the terms that I've put it to you, earthbound, that it was caused by human beings, that is different in nature from the resurrection, which is heaven-bound, leads to heaven, 
and as something that was done by God. So, so they're kind of different in nature and the nature of the bodies that we were just discussing before and after uh, is indicative of all that. So, there we are. That is um, just a few of Paul's thoughts there. Um, and you might like to comment or ask a question. If it's, if it's a difficult question, of course, I will have to ask someone else uh, amongst you to answer it. <laughs> but, but it would be helpful if you would mind, if you put your hand up, then I'll bring you the microphone. seems unlikely because he makes no reference to it and he was very forthright about his own shortcomings and if he'd actually been implicated or involved in any way or even just been an observer if he'd been an observer then he would have been a witness at least a part of it and I think that he'd have been proud to claim that uh, I think the other thing which is quite interesting it's slightly off the point but it does come back to this question of the witnesses there are lots of gaps in the chronology as regards Paul uh, we don't know what happened after he'd had that conversion experience, but it does seem to be that there was some time that elapsed before he undertook his ministry. Um, from subsequent accounts, it's clear that, that his relationship with the apostles in Jerusalem was a very tense one. Uh, and so it seems quite likely that whatever, what, whatever he did in the, in the kind of lost years, I don't know, it could have been three years, could have been longer than that, the last years before his, his own ministry kind of started up, uh, I think probably direct training from the apostles was probably not one of the things that he had. Again, I think if he had have done, he would have claimed that in, in one, at least one of the accounts. You know, not only did I have this vision of, of, of them. In fact, he claims here, I think, that he didn't have it secondhand, that his, um, his inspiration was in fact on the road to Damascus. Uh, and that, that therefore he couldn't be put down because he'd only got it at second hand from the apostles. But otherwise, I think I agree with what you said. And, and uh, as we noted last week, thinking about Thomas, um, yeah, Thomas, Thomas seems to be a good, a good model uh, and a pointer to all of those who come after, who, who cannot be direct witnesses in the way that the first apostles were. 
Um, two things, but I'll, uh, I'll have a gap between them, John. Um, it's, uh, God is clearly spirit. Um, uh, and uh, if, if God is a, spirit, is a spiritual quantity outside space and time, it seems logical to me that um, that is the sort of body which is being referred to. I can't imagine a physical body um, certainly, certainly not one with physical imperfections um, being part of God's domain uh, outside space and time. And I'm not sure I can uh, understand uh, a physical body being there at all. So, if you if you were to take, for example, the the um, uh, the visions in Revelation, those those are all that's all they are, is it? They are not indicative of anything other than um, like kind of back projections in, in John's head. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> yeah. it, it, that is, it, it's just that the, that just seemed logical to me. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying uh, that, it, that it, it's impossible. Uh, I just can't imagine a physical body outside space and time, which is heaven, the concept of heaven, God's domain, or whatever, whichever way you express it, which is outside space and time, I can't imagine that human bodies would be there, e even, even if you know, they were perfected and you got rid of warts and bunions and things, uh, I, I still can't see them being there. That doesn't mean to say it isn't the reality that is each of us, it is not uh, the spiritual essence of each of us, wouldn't be there, but I don't actually necessarily see it as a physical one. I'm not trying to argue that God couldn't do that if he wanted to. Um, it just seems more logical to, to go with a spiritual body. Okay, is that, is that both points? Mm -hmm. No, that's one last point. Let's have your second point. Uh, the, the, second, the second point um, is uh, uh, for what, I, for what I received, I passed on to you, um, and there's some suggestion, isn't there, that this this is actually very early. For what I received, being received when he was at Damascus, immediately after the conversion. So uh, this, if that is if that is what he does mean, um, we're talking perhaps three years after the event. This is what he had been told. Yes. Which, which, yeah. which, gives, which gives it even more validity. Yes. We, we, we don't precisely know that, well, as I say, there are, I mean, if, if, the, if the crucifixion and resurrection happened in about 30 or 33, um, that would take it to 36. And the earlier state that I've seen proposed for the first letter to the Thessalonians is the end of the 40s. So, so there is a period of time somehow in there where... Um, not well. Not much was happening in the way that it subsequently happened. Well, uh, it may be what the first Christians were believing and what they told Paul. Yeah. But, but he did nothing about it. Yeah. Yeah. Or if he did, it's, it's among the yep. letters. Yeah. There are many things that we don't. There are many things in heaven and on earth. Uh, I discovered somewhere, um, which is which is very relevant, that somebody's calculating that eighty-five percent of the Christian literature from the first century AD has, has disappeared and been destroyed. 
How anybody ever gets anything like that out? What the foggiest idea? Maybe that was more Paul's letters in the 85%. Perhaps it was what, what I would love to see would be Barnabas's letters. Um, any, does anybody want to respond to what... Uh, oh, there we are, Hugh. Um, firstly, I think you, you talk about the physical and the spiritual. Um, I would have thought that where we really have to start is with the empty tomb of Jesus. Now, I am a chemist or a chemical engineer by training, and I friend, it's the atoms and molecules that I'm sort of aware of, and they weren't there. Um, the body of Jesus came out of the tomb, and I think that Jesus' post-resurrection body, in a curious way, seems to at least to incorporated something of his physical nature. I agree with you the difficulty of envisaging a, uh, a sort of physical body outside of space and time. Um, but I, I, I believe in that the incarnation, the birth of Jesus, in a, in a wonderful way, God did come and take part in his creation. And that when he left, I think there's a sense in which I think I want to believe that he took part with him uh, in his body. And I, I think that whatever we say about the resurrection of ourselves is um, we have to sort of make sure that we at least take that sort of part of the resurrection, of Jesus' resurrection, into account. Um, but I was interested to read one of Tom Wright's books the other day about the, the end of the world, where he, he talks very much about the new heavens, but also the new earth, as it talks about in Revelation. And um, I was earlier today looking at the passage of scripture, which I think we're reading in February, one of the services where, which, where I think Paul writes um, about the sort of the physicalness of, of, of the, the, the that's right the, the creation um, waits on tiptoe to be transformed and uh, released from decay. Now decay to me is entropy. If you have entropy, that is the thing which wrecks us all. It causes everything to decay. But it seems that God is going to release this world from entropy. We will no longer decay. That is the new heavens or the new earth. So I think there is something physical there. I, I don't want to start painting pictures of it, but I think there is something there which we need somehow to take on board. Could I just comment though on what you said earlier about St. Paul after his Damascus Road? Because in Galatians chapter 1, um, he, he talks about it, and um, and he, he says, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before me, but I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. And I was personally unknown to the churches in Judea, they only heard the report that the one who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. 
But Paul does, and I find it very difficult to quite understand the authority of when, after his conversion, he sort of disappears into the desert for three years and then comes back uh, with this great authority. I mean, he's obviously claiming his apostleship, as you rightly said, from the Damascus Road. Yes, I saw the Lord. Um, but it's, it's frightening in some ways to think that he didn't then, according to this, he didn't seem to sit down and spend the next three years going through the whole faith with the, the other apostles. And, uh, nevertheless, um, his writings um, have set the pace, set the tone on the Christian faith ever since. So uh, obviously he, uh, um, people have taken what Paul wrote and um, we based our faith on it. I think just when you said, well, I don't want to paint any pictures, um, next week I shall be bringing along a few pictures that I think may help. Because I think that there are, one of the difficulties that we perhaps have in all of this is that, that clever though we think we are, our minds may not be fully capable of grasping all that there is in this. Um, and also, even if we could do that, I'm not sure that we have quite the words to describe it all. And that's why we're, or at least why I'm, kind of concerned about the exact translation of a particular word. Uh, because of the overtones that uh, a particular English word has. Uh, and, and it may simply be that um, uh, we, can't, we just can't quite do it. And sometimes that's why, that's why, apart from the fact that it gives you a break from me, but that's why we've had a little bit of music, because sometimes, uh, you know, the, the music can, can, can um, throw some light on a subject that if I talk for half an hour, it wouldn't throw much light on. And similarly, I think that um, some people seeing a particular picture and a couple that I've got in mind, I think are, are really helpful when we come to think about the implications of this for us. And, and uh, what, what, for example, why, why the resurrection appeared to happen out of the sight of men and women. Um, I've, I've got some pictures that I think help or may help us kind of work our way through that. So this is by way of being a bit of a teaser for next week, if you're able to come. <laughs> Anybody else like to um, comment or question anything? Well, um, thank you for coming. I hope that hasn't completely um, finished you off. I hope it's inspired you to, um, to um, look at this passage particularly, um, to... Um, think about some of the things that I've said and um, I'm absolutely definitely not necessarily right. Um, sorry? Oh, I'll give you a handout, yes. Um, but before that, I just I thought it would be nice for us to um, finish in prayer. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power that you displayed in raising Jesus from the dead. We thank you for having the scriptures, having the letters of Paul and the gospel accounts uh, to enable us to reflect on the resurrection and what it means for us. 
Help us to take it as seriously as St Paul took it and show us whatever it is that you have in mind for us that is important for us in our Christian lives at this time and help us to recognise in the risen Lord Jesus uh, the one who assures us of our ultimate place in heaven. We ask this in his name. Amen. Amen.